all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy for Women on MPV Think Radio. It is something that hasn't happened in quite some time. Dr. Owens and I are both on today and we're so excited to be doing so and so excited to be talking about a topic that's so important to women's health and that is cervical cancer prevention and screening, something that we're both very passionate about as it impacts a significant number of women every year. Uh, On trend, uh, what's been predicted for 2021 is that there will be 14,480 new cases diagnosed in women of cervical cancer. Far more than that will be cases diagnosed of precancerous lesions. And unfortunately, still about 4,290 deaths. This is far less than what we used to see even maybe 20 years ago back when cervical cancer was the leading cancer cause of death in women. We know now that it's bumped down the list significantly And that is due primarily to uh, effective screening and use of the PAP test, among other tests that we'll talk about today. But before we get into all of that, the number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. If you have any questions or comments about cervical cancer or cervical cancer screening and prevention, I know people have a lot of questions about the HPV vaccine. They have questions about um, PAP test screening recommendations. We're here to answer those questions. Hey, Dr. Owens. Hi, Dr. Brown. It's so good to be in with you today. I know it. <laughs> happy New Year. Look, happy New Year. Happiest of New Year's, Dr. Owens. Um, so, yeah, I, I am uh, really glad that we're getting a chance to kind of um, take a little break from talking about one virus because Everybody's talking about coronavirus, right? COVID. Um, and we talk about I've never, yeah, never heard of that. What is that? What is that? Yeah, um, which, by the way, we are both, what, one week out from vaccination number two. Um, feeling good. Feeling yeah, good. I'm feeling fine. Um, I was feeling grateful. Yeah. Great. Feeling great and grateful. Great mm-hmm. and grateful. Um, but, you know, I'm really. Um, and just so that everybody knows, since um, really quickly, uh, because, you know, we'll be talking about vaccination for another virus today, but just um, as it pertains to the to the COVID vaccine and it's becoming, you know, slowly more available to people. I think, um, you know, it's not it's not widely available to everyone right now, but um, I'm glad to know that we are seeing um, you know, it be made available to the public. And so there are many of you who are out there who will have the opportunity um, to be vaccinated or um, to exercise the choice to um, to receive the vaccine. And just from um, from our experiences, I think that's something that we'd like to share with you today, um, what our experiences were like, both Dr. Brown and I received vaccines. Yeah. Um, and I think we both got Pfizer, right? I got the Pfizer vaccine. You got Pfizer too? I did too. Mm-hmm. Um, cause yeah, cause our interval was the same. Um, and, um, I, 
you know, I've posted this on social media because I really want people to be aware. Um, there have been a lot of varying reports um, about people's experiences. Um, and between just the cohort of friends and colleagues and other people that I have experienced with, at least personally, mine was that I, I was sore, kind of like getting a tetanus shot um, when I got my uh, first and my second vaccine. But outside of that muscle soreness at the injection site, um, which went away with Motrin and probably would have just gone away with nothing if I had been a little bit more patient, um, I, I did fine. I didn't have any other symptoms. And that's with my first or with my second, um, my second vaccine. Um, there have been some people who, after they got their second shot, you know, kind of had um, low-grade fevers or might have had chills or fatigue. I've heard that. Um, but again, nothing that, that is remotely comparable to what severe COVID looks like. Um, and, you know, everybody has managed to kind of conservatively get through those symptoms without a whole lot of intervention or requiring anything except in some instances, maybe just a good night's rest. So I just wanted to share that information. Um, there are lots of people who um, I think are getting information from a wide variety of sources. And so I would just encourage everyone to be careful. Um, the decision to get the vaccine is definitely a personal choice. Um, it is something that has the capacity to keep you safer. Um, not just you, but um, also people around you. And so I would just encourage people to seriously consider it. Um, do your research um, and, and make sure that you're doing good research. Um, this, the research that's kind of invested in science and not that's based in um, public opinion or discussion groups on Facebook, but like the true scientific merit of the vaccine, how it works and why. I know there's a lot of skepticism. I was kind of skeptical myself, but I felt like it was the best decision for me and for my family um, and just to kind of help keep my patients and my colleagues safe as well as myself. And it's really one, yet another tool that we can use to help flatten the curve. So um, the other part is that we have gotten our vaccines, but we are not out willy-nilly with no masks on, running around, licking doorknobs or doing other crazy things. Like we are still socially distanced. We're not in the studio right now. Um, we are still um, wearing our masks and, and washing our hands and abiding by all of the other recommendations from the CDC, even though we have been vaccinated. So um, it's not going to change overnight. And um, we are still going to continue to do all the things that we were doing before to help keep you guys um, as well as ourselves safe. But I just wanted to kind of let you know um, what our experience has been. Allie, please feel free to chime in um, with kind of your experience and any other things that you'd like to say. Because I think that's one thing that before we move on and start talking about um, HPV, we can kind of at least get, get through this COVID piece. Yeah, so um, I got my second, well, what, same like uh, you, Michelle, with my first round, I just had a sore arm. Um, I took some ibuprofen afterwards, which is what I always do with the flu shot. So I felt fine. Then I started hearing people talking about, I, I was looking on the Facebook and people were saying, oh, they had read studies that maybe taking uh, ibuprofen or something afterwards decreased the efficacy. Um, and I went and researched it myself and I couldn't find any studies that specifically stated that or that showed that. Um, but I still got kind of nervous. So after my second dose, I said, well, I'm just going to try not to take anything. Um, <clears throat> and then I, I have to say that after like 10 or 12 hours, I started feeling kind of crummy. 
you know, not horrible, but uh, I just felt my immune system really ramping up. So I felt achy. I kind of had the chills. Then I went ahead and took my uh, ibuprofen and then I felt, I felt fine. Um, the next day I felt good and started feeling kind of chilled and achy again that next night. Isn't it weird? Sometimes you feel worse at night. And I uh, took my ibuprofen again, and then I felt much better. So it's it's definitely, even for someone like me, and I tend to get fever, like, I don't know. I, I, you know, while it was annoying, it was easily remedied with ibuprofen. And it also kind of, I had this sense of accomplishment. Like, I felt like I was earning my immunity. I'm like, oh, that's my immune system. Oh, working hard. Look at me. I'm going to be immune. <laughs> so um, I kind of kind of enjoyed it I also milked it you know I got in the bed and I made my husband cook dinner for the kids and you know I said oh I'm sick from my vaccine no I can't do anything so you know you can use it to your advantage I'm just going to tell the listening audience out there more advantage than just being immune to COVID and stopping the spread you can also use it for sympathy oh my goodness well so there you have it and I mean we got the same um the vaccine from the same manufacturer and had slightly different experiences although the one thing that was that we did have in common was the utilization of ibuprofen um and so uh I did use that and I felt I felt fine um I was nervous because you know I'd been hearing other people having different experiences and you just don't know I had this really, I was, I was scared. I was going to wake up with Bell's palsy and all this other stuff. Cause you know, you can't help but be affected by some of that sensationalism. It's floating around out there. And even though it's rare, you just don't know if it's going to happen to you. But I, um, yeah, I, I, I felt fine, uh, after the vaccine. Um, but I did know I was sore in my arm, much more sore than I tend to be. But you know, this is the thing that I think people also need to know. So being vaccinated and, and having that little immune boost is really, it's, it's important, but it, it's kind of like, when you get the flu shot, you know, you can get the flu shot and it's you can still get the flu, not from the shot, but you can still get the flu even after you've been vaccinated. Um, and so just be mindful that that this does not rule out you ever getting COVID just because you've been vaccinated. But the the real power in it, I think, is the fact that it greatly reduces the likelihood of you having severe disease. And so that's the thing that's really important, which is, again, I think a good reason to emphasize to people that, you know, once the band-aids come off, the masks don't come off. And the other part is that everyone is not yet vaccinated. And so the ability to spread the disease is still there. The ability to contract the disease is still there, although it is definitely lessened. Um, this is not like this is not the get out of jail free um, card. You don't get a, a ticket to just kind of disregard the other um, social distancing and other things that we're doing in order to to keep people safe and to keep each other safe. Did you just make that up about the Band-Aid coming off but the mask doesn't come off? Did you just make that up? It came straight out of my head, man. From my oh, head, you're, from my head you to your ears. You're a genius. <laughs> I'm going to use that one. I'm always, I'm always impressed by you. <laughs> so, um, no, but I do think that's important because I think a lot of people have been asking, hey, I'm vaccinated, so now can I go back right. to normal? Right. And yeah, the answer is not, not quite yet. We still, we got a ways to go before we're, we, before that happens. But at least know that you're, the journey has started. You, you're on your way. You're one step closer than you were, um, but it's only one step. So there. Yeah. And for such a harmless intervention, like wearing a mask, it's worth it. Like the risk benefit to just keep on doing it. If the intervention was something that was really 
intrusive or had a lot of risk to it, then maybe we would do otherwise. But, you know, just continue wearing those masks. Yeah, it's just, this whole thing has just kind of been a little inconvenient. It's been inconvenient. And yeah, I think and it's hard for business. Um, I get that people have lost jobs and things like that. But this is a big step toward writing that. Absolutely. So um, we uh, we took a little segue to talk about that. Um, we are going to take our first break of the hour. And when we come back, we promise we will shift. We're going to shift. Um, we're going to shift gears and, and we're going to talk about a different vaccine. So get ready to talk about the human papillomavirus, HPV. We're going to talk about cervical cancer um, and uh, talk about where it is and, and how people get it and how you screen for it and all those other great uh, bits of information that'll be coming up right after this short break. Stay with us. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. with us Southern Remedy for Women, where we talk about issues of health and wellness and provide a woman's perspective. Today, we are talking about cervical cancer. Um, we started out by telling you guys that we are happily vaccinated people against COVID. So we're doing our part. Hopefully you have an opportunity to, um, to do the same. Um, but today we are raising awareness about cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is one of the more common um, GYN cancers, uh, a cancer of the female genital tract. Um, it is actually the cervix, as you know, is the opening to the uterus. Um, Allie's cringing, hoping that I don't say the word womb, because for some reason she doesn't like that, but I say it because that's what people know it as. So um, I love the, the womb. at the top of the vagina, um, that is the opening um, to the uterus. Now, while cervical cancer is not the most common gynecologic cancer, that would be uterine cancer, um, which is the most common, um, it is still a significant contributor to cancer um, deaths for women, um, especially in Mississippi. And um, so we wanted to kind of give you guys some information about how to protect yourself. Um, I think one of the great advances in women's health care um, is very much related to, um, to cervical cancer, and that's through the screen of the pap test or the pap smear. Um, and that's um, where you actually um, obtain a sample of the cells from the surface of the cervix, um, and they look at them under the microscope. We send them to our friendly pathologist to be examined under the microscope and they look for changes that are suggestive of precancer lesions or what we call dysplasia, which means that the cells undergo a change, um, certain kinds of changes that show, um, a, I guess, a, a difference in the way that they are behaving or what have you. 
Um, and how severe that change is actually kind of correlates to the likelihood that you will ultimately, it will ultimately progress to cancer. So it's stages and I'm being very um, inartful in that description. So I'm going to let Dr. Brown. I'm, in, I'm enjoying listening to you describe pathology. I, I like it. Yeah. So um, from the person who's the, the collector of the sample to the person who actually looks at the sample and uh, analyzes it, um, we'll let her chime in there and, and fix that. Um, but the pap smear, that's what a pap smear is, right? So a pap smear is not um, checking you for other sexually transmitted diseases. So if you are being tested for gonorrhea or chlamydia, that is not the same as a pap smear. You may get a speculum exam to have other things done to your cervix. So people may look at the cervix. They may, um, they may obtain cultures from the vagina using a speculum. But just because that speculum is used doesn't mean you're getting a pap smear. A pap smear or the pap test is specifically cervical cancer screening. And by utilizing uh, pap smears, we have been able to see a significant decrease in cervical cancers because we're able to intervene and treat early. Um, diagnosis is a little bit easier now because of that. Um, and as a result, people are dying less frequently. So we've been able to save many lives through a very robust um, screening process. Yeah, prior to the pap test, I mean, the way that uh, your gynecologist would be able to detect uh, cervical cancer or, you know, even more rarely a precancerous lesion would to be actually to see a lesion. That would be kind of the earliest a lesion that they could actually see with their eyes when looking at the cervix, which, you know, the things that we can see with a microscope happen far before any sort of changes occur that's detectable to the human unaided eye. Or even worse, you know, probably most patients, if not many, presented with advanced disease. So they had a mass, they had metastasis, they had symptoms, you know, block, you know, the issues with uh, going to the bathroom, issues with bleeding during sexual intercourse and things like that, that we associate with advanced cervical cancer, but we see far less now before the pap test. These were often the first signs uh, of cervical cancer. Yeah, so it's a big, a big win for women. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you make a really good point. Um, it, and it's really an issue with a lot of the GYN cancers in general. Uh, and that is that um, by the time you have symptoms, um, the cancers are usually pretty far advanced. Um, they tend to uh, grow or spread in the very early stages, almost kind of silently. And that is one of the challenges um, and why screening is so important because we don't really have great screening tests for any of the other GYN cancers. I mean, if you think about ovarian cancer, if you think about uterine cancer, we don't have great screening tests for those cancers. But um, when it comes to cervical cancer, we, we do through the PAP test. So the number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also email us with questions and comments at women at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to the phones and talk to Ed, who's calling us from Jackson. Hi, Ed. Hey, uh, Dr. Owens. This is Ed. I used to work on Five Wiser. 
I um, know. I hear your voice. I know exactly who you are. How are you? <laughs> I am. I am well. I, I miss you all. I miss people I used to work with. I do not miss all the computers, et cetera. But anyway, uh, one thing. One thing that I remember, really remember, was children. I mean, literally children. Twenty-two, twenty-four year old coming to the hospital with advanced cervical cancer um, because they had had, obviously, unprotected sex with um, men who were had been exposed to HPV but did not have any symptoms, obviously, and gave it to these girls, and they were looking at possibly dying before their 30th birthday, and it was just heartbreaking. And I hear people say that, oh, that's not going to happen to my little girl. She wouldn't do that. Etc. And I just think people need to be aware that teenagers are teenagers and they're going to be doing things you don't think they're going to be doing and they could die from it. You know, Ed, you make a, a really great point um, that, that this is that a lot of people get this disease um, and, and we, we see it um, even in, in younger populations. It's not something that happens. You know, a lot of times people think that cancer is something that happens to our more more senior members of our communities, that it comes from the older population. And and while age can be a risk factor in certain cancers, um, cervical cancer is um, a little bit more unique because it does tend to kind of reach its peak or, or um, is higher in, in younger populations, typically around those who are middle aged. But we do see quite a few women who have cervical cancer um, in their 20s and 30s. And, um, and you are right, um, the, it, the transmission of the human papillomavirus is, um, it is sexually transmitted. We know that. Um, and when people think about sexual intercourse, a lot of times they're not thinking about pregnancy, but they surely aren't thinking about cancer. Um, and I think that there is a misperception that somehow if it looks okay, it's okay. Um, or if, you know, there's some people who will smell something before they, before they eat it. So it's like, if it smells okay, it's okay. No, it's, Stop. but you know, everybody knows somebody who sniffed something that they're getting ready to try that they've never tried before. They sniff it, it smells okay. And so they feel like it's okay. Like you can't see it. You can't smell it. There's not, it, you won't necessarily know that a person has been exposed to that virus and they can pass it on to you. So um, I think that's really a, a very important point. And I'm so glad that you called. Ed, we miss you so much. Ed was like an, an awesome nurse um, and was like is one of the most caring people you would ever meet. And, you know, all of the people who I think he cared for were very lucky to have him. But um, and he worked on our oncology floor and so really got a chance to to share in the lives and the stories of these people, these women and their families. Um, and it is really hard when you see a person with end stage cancer and cervical cancer is is notoriously horrible. I mean, all cancer is awful, but to to watch these women lose their lives and the way that they do so as this cancer just kind of takes over their bodies is really heartbreaking. Um, and I think having people recognize where it comes from, how we can detect it, and how to really help prevent it um, is the key. Uh, because 
when these late stage cancers are found, your options um, and life expectancy and ability or chance for cure is significantly decreased when you have an advanced stage cancer as opposed to some of these earlier cancers or precancerous lesions that we have the ability to detect um, with routine screening. Absolutely. And this really brings up two important points. Thank you, Ed, uh, which are having your pap test at recommended times and also vaccination against the HPV virus, um, which is for both boys and girls. Um, so just to put that out there, um, you know, Absolutely. just the dramatic decrease even having to deal with this. And another thing it really makes me think of, you know, some years back, it used to be that the recommendation was to initiate having a pap test when um, you started having sexual intercourse. That changed in recent years to the recommendation of pap testing starting at age 21 the reason for that being given that, you know, it takes several years after sexual intercourse begins for a cancer to develop, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then looking at large population-based studies, they found that there was more risk versus reward in screening a younger population. But what Ed speaks of, not all populations are the same. And certainly in looking at PAP tests and different screening tests, uh, we would see these high-grade uh, lesions. Um, you know, far more, of course, we see the precancerous lesions and the cancers, and they would be in very young women. So that has always troubled me a little bit. Um, increasing that starting age to 20, 21 just seems old to me, um, but that's kind of what the data had shown. Dr. Owens, what have you seen in your practice? And I know that, um, and that we can talk about the other screening recommendations as well, but I know that not all clinicians necessarily follow the guidelines to a T at this point. Well, and I think the other part is that there, so there are, the guidelines change quite frequently. Um, fortunately, technology has allowed us to kind of keep up with those changes. And the other part is that different organizations have different recommendations. Um, and so, you know, as, as we are evolving in our knowledge and understanding, as technology is providing us with more opportunities to better understand um, and identify HPV viruses and their contributions to cancer, I think um, those things are going to continue to change in subtle ways um, until we kind of get to a point where we've kind of, quote, perfected it. Um, but, you know, typically we are starting... Um, so yes, we push back starting screening with PAP tests until age 21. Um, most people who are not in the highest risk categories um, will usually be able to be followed every three to five years. Um, that's most people. Um, and again, there are some people who are in a higher risk category, those who are immunocompromised, et cetera, who may need more frequent screening. And the other thing is, if you have dysplasia identified, um, so if those changes have taken place, so your body has not just totally cleared the virus, but is actually showing signs of being infected by the virus, and that virus is actually changing those cells, then your surveillance is going to be contingent upon what they see and how severe it is. Then they'll determine how often you need to come back. And that's kind of pretty much standard, like it would be with your blood pressure, right? Like you have hypertension and if you're 
and it's mild and they try to add an exercise and you come back in three months. If it's super duper high, they're not going to tell you come back in three months. So um, for people who have more severe lesions or more concerning lesions, there will either be a recommendation for closer surveillance, number one, or number two, they may meet criteria for some sort of intervention, intervention, which is usually by removal um, if it gets severe enough. All right. Well, I think it's time for our next break. When we come back, we're going to talk some about the HPV vaccine that is widely available. Please give us any calls uh, that you may have with questions and comments at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also email us at women at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Hall Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning This is Southern Remedy for Women, and Allie and I are trying to bring us back in at the same time. This is great. Fantastic. We're talking about <laughs> cervical cancer awareness. See, these are the joys, guys, of doing this podcast absolutely via Skype. We just kind of get so excited. We both want to talk at the same time. Um, but we are talking today about cervical cancer. Uh, this is cervical cancer awareness month and we are, um, discussing a very significant contributor to GYN, um, cancer, uh, cases in death. And, um, also about the primary culprit, um, which is a virus. Um, that virus is the human papillomavirus, or HPV. Um, HPV, of course, can infect anyone who has ever had a sexual encounter, and that does not necessarily mean you have to have penetration. So it doesn't. There doesn't have to be penetration in order for there to be viral transmission. HPV is spread by skin-to-skin contact, um, which is a little different. So you don't have to have exchange of bodily fluids in order to transmit HPV, that is skin-to-skin contact is all that is necessary. So what does that mean? Okay, so Allie, put your earmuffs on. Um, that means, so so any t- so rubbing or touching skin-to-skin contact is enough for viral transmission. There does not have to be any fluid or liquid or anything in order for there to be transmission. So we just need to understand that first and foremost. I think that's really important for people to understand because when we think about sexually transmitted infections or sexually transmitted diseases, I believe that sometimes people don't, I, I think that sometimes people will believe that that means that it has to be penetrative. 
it has to be, or there has to be an exchange of bodily fluids. HPV is different. Skin to skin contact. So it's just about the touching. Touching is enough. Um, and so I wanted everybody to be aware of that. Um, it can be contracted from one partner. It can remain dormant. Our bodies have an immune system that can actually um, attack and destroy the virus. So um, just because you've been exposed doesn't necessarily mean that you will develop um, cancer or have a problem. But um, the difficult thing is that you can't tell when you are exposed, if you're one of those people who won't. So exposure, of course, is a risk. But in some instances, our bodies have the ability to overcome the virus. Um, in most, and, probably, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Which eight out of I, 10 people, right. eight out of 10 people have been in contact with HPV who are sexually active. I mean, that it's, the chances are, you know, so it's not, oh, this doesn't happen to me, this doesn't happen to my kids. I mean, just kind of have to assume it will happen. I think just to be on the safe side, you know, just the way right. the odds are. Yeah. And it's, and so there's so much stigma around sexually transmitted infections and disease. Um, and so, so th this is not kind of a, a nasty thing, um, but it is a virus that's transmitted through that, through sexual contact, sexual contact. Um, and so I think that that's kind of something that we all need everybody to kind of be yeah, just put it out there. Uh, yeah, I mean, some years ago, even breast cancer was considered taboo. You know, I mean, things change and we have to put our health first, right, ahead of things and discuss things with your physician. Yeah, and I think that this is something that, you know, it's it's so widespread and so common that people need to be aware of it. Um, it, it doesn't do us any justice to pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, and it doesn't do any good for us to kind of label it as some kind of nasty thing um, but rather just a viral infection that comes as a result of this contact, and we need to kind of govern ourselves accordingly. Um, so protection is, of course, barrier protection is one way to kind of help eliminate that, right? No skin-to-skin -skin contact. You don't, you lessen the chance for um, transmission. Um, but the other thing, and we were talking about the, the clearing up, uh, about 80 to 90 percent of cases of HPV will be naturally cleared. So um, your body has the capacity, the ability to fight off infections, and HPV is no different. And more often than not, the body does have the opportunity to um, naturally clear the virus. So that, I think, is also good news um, as we're talking about HPV. Um, there are many different types, and some of those types are, so far, we um, don't have them associated with anything negative, so they are considered relatively harmless. There are a few types that cause benign disease like warts, and then there are several types that have been identified that cause cancer, and it's not just cervical cancer, but other kinds of cancers. I'm going to take a pause right there because we have a call on the line, and we're going to hear from Ruth, who um, wants to talk to us this morning. Good morning, Ruth. Oh, good morning. I was just calling to check. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to encourage my granddaughter, who just turned 18 and will be going to college next year. Um, I don't know if she can do it on her own. Um, her parents are separated, and her mother's the primary caregiver. But um, the mother does not seem to ha I've tried for years to encourage her two or three times to have the child vaccinated. And she said that her doctor said until she's sexually active that it wasn't necessary. Well, 
getting older and it might be coming sooner than we think. You don't think they're going to be active, but and you hope and pray that they wouldn't be, but um, you never know when it's going to happen, and it might be too late then. So I don't know if you can have, um, and also wanted to ask, is it one shot to the vaccination, or is it more than one? And that's all. So I'll listen for your answer on the radio. Okay? Thank you. Great. Well, thanks, thanks for calling, Ruth. Ooh, yeah, we wanted to talk about the vaccine. Yeah, it's a, gr it's a good segue. Uh, actually, the, the HPV vaccination is recommended regardless of um, starting sex and, and initiation of sexual intercourse. In fact, it's given uh, most recommended in, during the ages of 9 to 12 years old um, because it's thought that, you know, the body needs to build up immunity. And there are two shots in that series. But if you're getting it after the age of 12 or they say after the age of 15, um, that you get actually three doses. So she definitely still can get it. She'll have to get three shots. She should get it in my professional opinion. Um, so that is actually a, 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 a misinformation that the patient has to be sexually active to receive it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that, um, yeah. The, so if you wait until they're sexually active, then you've missed the opportunity to provide them with complete protection. Um, and the other part is um, there are some people who I think might be fearful that by doing it, um, by vaccinating their child, that that may somehow be showing permission or giving permission or implying permission or encouraging them to um, have to be sexually active. Um, and I think that that is probably also a concern for many people parents. I don't want to give my kid this vaccine because that's going to encourage it. But, but if you think about it, um, we, does getting the flu shot encourage you to go get the flu? Um, does having the measles and mumps and rubella vaccine encourage you to go out and get MMR? No. But I think that, you know, when it comes to parents, and, and making the right decisions for your children and, and wanting to protect them. I mean, you want to protect them and you want them to make good decisions. Vaccines don't take the place of get, arming your children with the ability to make good decisions. And, and whatever your values are in your home, like you, you continue to instill those in your children. You, you have to do that. Um, and this is just a part of their, their overall health care. Um, and the other part is, and I, I'm going to say this because I am a women's health doctor, um, every child who is exposed to a sexual encounter does not always have the opportunity to do that by choice. And that is a, that is a, a very harsh but real um, experience for many people. There are probably people who are listening to this show today and your first encounter was not an encounter that you consented to or that you made your mind up to do. And, and I feel like those children need to be protected as well. Um, so again, um, it, it can be very difficult to kind of have these conversations um, and, and I think it requires us, even as parents, we, Allie, you know, we've got kids. Um, we have to face some of our fears about what we want for our children and the decisions that they're going to make at a time when we don't feel like they're ready to make those decisions. And you're thinking about, well, what does this mean ultimately? Um, but in my, in my mind, this is not about 
it's not about sex, but it is about protection. Um, and and so in my brain, in my mommy doctor brain, those things are different. But I do understand that some people may feel differently about that, and they may be concerned or conflicted. But that's at least you know how I've how I've addressed it. Um, yeah, I have to kind of laugh at that because when my son, uh, my older son, received his first HPV vaccination, he was like eleven, and I mean he just knows he got a shot. Like he's mad because he even has to get a shot. It's not like he's going out and getting into some mischief once we go home. He's just getting right back on Minecraft. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't know. I just feel like that education starts in the home. And, uh, and thank you, Dr. Owens for bringing up, um, that important part about non-consensual sex. It's, it's a reality. We don't want to think about it for our kids. It, um, it's way more common and it's way more yeah. common in our younger children and yeah. younger kids than it is in the older ones, that non-consensual kind of thing. And I just, I don't know. I just I've seen it enough that it makes me concerned. And I, I don't think that any of us ever think about that happening or expect for that to happen to our children. And it is so devastating in so many ways when it does um, that anything that you can do that helps to give you a little bit more peace of mind and makes you feel like your babies were protected. I just feel like you you want to do that. or At least I would want to do that. Um, we still we have another caller on the line. Um, so we're going to go on and hear from Anne, who's calling from Saltillo. Yes. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. Um, I want to second the motion on that um, non-consensual uh, thing because, the it, unfortunately, I contracted this at an early age in my 20s when I had an infidelity from a spouse. And uh, totally unexpected, totally, you know, and did not know it for actually a couple of years. So I'm a... I'm a if there is a preventative measure, you don't know where every person has been. And you, they can be perfectly nice and look perfectly nice and everything else and be asymptomatic themselves and still spread this thing. So that's not really why I called, though, although it ties into this. Because of that exposure in a marriage, actually, I have been hypervigilant over the course of my life to see if I had any signs or you know, symptoms of any, you know, residual effects such as cancer because it gives you a, it gives you pause all the time when you have any symptom that's not completely normal. But in my 50s, I had an abnormal um, event um, just um, after menopause, uh, just spotting, normal, completely abnormal. It had been years. since I'd had a menstrual period, and because of the hypervigilance, instead of waiting, like my nurse told me, it was no big deal, I actually did follow up within 24 hours and found out immediately that I had uh, uterine cancer. So I do not link the two, but I will say that if there's a change in your body, if there's anything you see you need to follow up. It's just it just makes sense. Even though the nurse told me I could do this at my leisure, the doctor certainly didn't say that. This was a I will say this. It was a, like a nurse line where you called and asked for information, and she gave me some extremely bad information, which is this is no big deal, and it was a big deal. And I did have cancer, and it was fast growing, but it was caught early. So. You know, all these things tie in together because all our symptoms are so vague sometimes 
that whether it's from uh, HPV or any other cause, if you have a change there, you really need to follow up on it for peace of mind. And that's really all I have to say. And I feel like if if there was a, a mic to drop, that would have been the mic drop moment. I mean, you are spot on and you are so correct. And there's so not all information is good information. And sometimes we seek information from what we believe are trusted sources and we still get um, we get not great information or we get um, bad advice. I'm so glad that you um, trusted yourself. Um, I think sometimes as women, and maybe even there are probably men too, who struggle with feeling confident um, to trust themselves and trust their bodies. Um, But nobody has been in that body longer than you. And so you know it better than anyone. And I firmly believe that people should continue to advocate for themselves when when somebody tells them, oh, it's not a big deal. Um, If you think it's a big deal, see it through. Um, you deserve that. Um, and, and you are worth it. So absolutely. And I hope that you um, continue to have many years of, of health as a result of, of being your own best advocate. Um, yeah, there's never, ladies and gentlemen, if you are um, beyond the change of life or if you have had um, menopause and you have vaginal bleeding, even if it's just spotting, that is, it's worth being investigated. It is not normal bleeding after the change of life, period. That's not normal, um, and it needs to be evaluated, investigated. Um, yeah. So um, that was really Every great. Time. Every time. Absolutely, every time. <laughs> and, and if you call somebody and they tell you it's not a big deal, don't believe them. Hang up and go get it checked out. Um, so we are going to stay on the phone lines. We've got about five minutes left in the broadcast, and we are going to hear from Chuck, who's calling us from Raymond. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning. Two quick questions for you. Good morning. Oh. Hey, we're here. We got you. Okay. We're waiting. We're ready for those questions. <laughs> All right, two questions. Is cervical cancer and lower women's cancer, are they the number one HPV diseases in Mississippi? And are there places in the world where HPV vaccine has been used more and it's been shown to decrease cervical cancer? Are there big studies in in other countries maybe that show that this works better than people in America think it does? And that's it. So um, good question. Uh, So number one, um, so no. So with respect to HPV-related cancers, um, it, HPV has been implicated, or we know um, causes many other kinds of cancer as well. Now, as far as how many in Mississippi, I don't have all of the Mississippi stats available, um, but if you go to the CDC website, you can find the information specifically for these cancers. However, what I will do is I will list the HPV-related cancers for you. So anal cancer, is, num- is one, cancer of the penis or penile cancer, vulvar cancer, which is the, um, the skin outside of the vagina um, around a woman's genital area, or- oral cancer, and head and neck cancers, okay? And so that now over 70% of oral cancers are attributed to HPV infection. It now has surpassed smoking. 
as a causative agent for oral cancer. Um, head and neck cancer, as I just mentioned, and vaginal cancer. So all of those cancers have a direct link to HPV infection. Um, and, you know, when, like I said, when you go on the CDC website, you can actually see the statistics for Mississippi. But when you look at the overall cancer um, rates, cervical cancer rates, they are really high um, all across the southeast. So this is not just a Mississippi thing, but we see many more of these cancer cases um, with our neighboring states. So in Louisiana, Tennessee, Alabama, um, here in Mississippi, um, in Georgia and Florida and like all throughout the Southeast. So it's just something that is um, a little bit more prevalent um, in the deep South uh, than it is across the country. Um, and I apologize for not having that information about um, how frequent the HPV well, the frequency or the rates for the other cancers in Mississippi, because I wasn't. Yeah, cervical cancer would be the highest. Yeah. Uh, and he also asked about the efficacy of the vaccine. You know, the way that the vaccine trials went was they looked at efficacy as the prevention of HPV type uh, persistent infection. So that's that 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 dysplasia or the change of the cells that Dr. Owens was talking about before. And they found that close to 100 percent efficacy was was provided by these HPV vaccines. And additionally, for the newer quadrivalent vaccine, it also showed 99% prevention for genital warts because it adds in one of those viruses that also causes not only cancer, instead it causes warts. So that's how we determine efficacy. You know, long-term prevention of cancer deaths, cancer incidents, you know, that, that takes some years to come through. But since we know that that is the definite precursor lesion to the vast majority of cervical cancers, then we extrapolate that since we have that high efficacy of the vaccine in preventing those precancerous lesions, that then in turn that would prevent the cancer itself. Also to address safety of the vaccine, there have been many trials, probably over a million people enrolled in these trials worldwide that have shown this to be a very safe vaccine. Dr. Owens, is there any effect on fertility? Because that was a concern early on. No, there hasn't been a shown to, there hasn't been shown to negatively impact fertility either. Um, there you go. So I think those are misinformations that people have received over the years. So it's safe for your children. Again, vaccinating between the ages of nine and 26 years of age. And there has been some, yeah, that, that's the recommendation, but it has all been, also been uh, discussed that you might be able to extend. So if you are beyond the ages of 26, that it could be a benefit of you receiving the vaccine as well, because it will cover you you other stereotypes or other types that you might not have been uh, exposed to. Wow. I hear something. I feel like that flew by. It's because we were both here. Perhaps. But And we had great callers, people who are, um, you know, really sharing some great stories and and doing a great job to raise awareness. Um, So I guess that means it's time for us to go. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, For Dr. Allie Brown, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens. We were produced by Jay White. I mean, yeah, by Jay White and Java Chapman. And I think Liz also screened calls. Thanks so much for being with us. NPR is here now is next on MPB Think Radio. You guys stay safe, be careful, take care of each other. 